You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. This is part one of M Pavilion's annual tag team discussion, M Relay. This is beautiful, beautiful concept to talk about. So we do navigate our way through life every day. A to B, you know. We just told you where the toilets are. But we also navigate our way through life as we grow up, as we take on our roles. And often access to health and well-being is hindered because of where we find ourselves in life. And people can be disadvantaged and need assistance and help in navigating their way through that. So we're going to be touching not only on physical navigation but also on emotion and spiritual navigation and, and helping people break that cycle where they're stuck. And a lot of the speakers here have got some fantastic things to say. So without further ado, I shall take my seat and introduce you to Isun. So Isun Kazarani. I son. I knew that. I said Isun when I first met her and she said, no, it's I son. I said, what a beautiful name and then I forgot it. So I son is a practice-based researcher and a guest lecturer in architecture. And her PhD was looking at integrative housing in the home, work and well-being. So Sorry, that was my PhD, but it was partly the part of it. Um, and, her, and the relationship between the design strategy, here we go, and the human embodied sensorial and cultural experience. And that's a mouthful, isn't it? But I think she'll help us explain exactly what that is. So, Ison, to start with, how did you find your way to where you are today, working in architecture and looking at those things in design? Um, I'll just get behind your mic, guys. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone, first, and thanks for having me. So this is a very interesting question because I started off my PhD um, because of my interest in the experience of place and experience of space. So I was looking at the way design and architecture can impact the way we um, experience this space, particularly in terms of sensorial interaction um, and also cultural um, impact on the collective sense. So that was partly what I did in my PhD, and I was looking at all these multi-sensory interaction with space. Um, and after finishing off my PhD, I was becoming very interested in um, how our houses and our homes, and that was the thing, because I was looking at um, the design of public spaces, like public buildings or pavilions, like the space that we are in, and um, what is it? What is it about certain architectural spaces that make people feel good or feel happy? Um, and then I was looking at that. But then, because of the changes in my personal life as well, I was sort of transitioning into a more enclosed spaces. I was writing up, uh, writing, up, writing up my PhD, and I had to space indoors in the interior spaces for over a year, and I. Actually, I got to meet more people outside the academia, and that um, made me pretty interested in how our houses, our, our homes are very important in terms of um, many people are having shifts in their lifestyle. For example, not all of us would um, do nine to five type of uh, work, you know, lifestyle. And um, also, exercise and fitness and wellness is becoming a very important thing. But many of us are too busy and too stressed out to go to the gyms or, you know, like more public type of spaces. So home, the home, the house becomes the stage for us to sort of um, uh, integrate all these aspects of wellness and work into it. So 
that was why I um, started working on this uh, project um, called um, Integrative Housing, how we can integrate wellness and health and also as part of our life, um, which we developed later with Dr. Kirsten Day. So you mentioned looking at how we react in, in sort of with our environment, with our senses. Mm -hmm. How did you measure that? Um, yeah, that's a very good question because um, it's sort of a subjective type of um, study, subjective um, um, study. And what I did was that I recorded my five different senses. So like I used different techniques of photography, sound recording, and also I did lots of creative, creative writing and also did lots of drawing and sketches to be able to uh, document my personal sense of space and uh, and also also looking at and looking at the way people live their life and um, doing some interviews and um, yeah things like that so you also mentioned um, your own personal journey mm -hmm. um, locked up during your PhD and mm -hmm. I, I have also experienced that you, mm -hmm. you do become quite internal and you don't get out enough and you really have to get out and have a walk and and look at the world and I'm mm -hmm. pleased to hear you're a practice-based researcher mm -hmm. but is there a time in your life where you have been lost and that there was something or someone that helped you find your way mm -hmm. back? Mm -hmm. um, again a very good question because that was actually maybe that was the main drive for um, coming up with this project of integrative housing because um, Research shows that um, doing a PhD can make you really stressed out. And people who, are do, who, do, who actually do a PhD might suffer from stress six times more than other people who don't experience such a thing. So that was a big thing. And then, and obviously there are people who in your life who can help you with you know, the stress that you go through life and things like that. But what I found really was that the only person who can help you is you. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, based on that, I mean, that experience of being a little bit separate from, um, away from um, the outside, um, or let's say from the academic world and trying to focus on my PhD was that I got to meet people in the cafes and then see how many pe people are actually doing remote working. And um, lots of people are just, you know, working at the cafes or they um, are also um, working at, you know, um, shared working spaces these days. So I was, I was trying, I was sort of discovering the world through navigate, navigating mostly my neighborhood in St. Kilda. And that really helped because you get to know, okay, so this is not the only way that I can live my life, but there are other ways that you can live your life. And then you sort of switch in and then try to, um, uh, navigate between inside and outside and then see if there are things that you can shift inside you and around you that can get you closer to where you want to get. And I guess um, there were things on the way that really helped me in terms of um, health, uh, which was things like meditation, physical movement, and uh, mindfulness and things like that. So those were actually my inspirations for my project as well. So in essence, going through the process of a PhD is actually taking you to a new point of exactly. research. Yeah. Um, and I look forward to reading the next step. Uh, most people here, when we say things, they're, they're nodding because I can see they've got their, their own beliefs and they've come here with questions as well. Um, you mentioned that 
only we can help ourselves navigate. But mm-hmm. there, there are times in our lives where mm-hmm. that is, you know, often not possible, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. of what's happened to us or um, whether we, you know, we've got um, reduced access. Is there a way, some sort of message you could give to people to help people who perhaps don't have that, you know, ability to self-navigate from your work? So, sort of putting it on the flip side. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, and that's why, again, um, you know, I was looking at this, uh, the importance of designing housing and how the design actually plays a very important role to motivate people to move and navigate. So... Um, and then looking at the role of um, the design in affordable housing and small size apartment and how it's important to motivate people to move inside their tiny apartments. Um, again, based on my personal experience of living in a studio apartment and uh, you know using all these different uh, type of flexible furniture and flexible settings. Um, so I think the role of design is very important to get to people to navigate inside their apartments, but also get them to come out and be um, integrated in the social space. Mm. And so I think social interaction is another very important thing that navigation uh, sort of motivates. So um, I think the design and the planning of uh, uh, of our spaces, including our homes and you know apartments, is very important in motivating people and. Um, provoking that type of physical movement because the mind and the body are very, Mm. you know, interconnected. Beautiful. And just to finish then, what would be your your take-home message? Is it to please do your work in a cafe? Is it to reach out to people in society? Is What would be the message for people? I I think my message would be if if you hear a call, always follow it. And it could be risky, but it's very important to um, make sure that you are the, your authentic self. And that's how you can navigate um, your life in a way that you have the best experience. And you get to the place that you, uh, that you, deep, you know, deep inside you are um, craving for. Thank you very much. That was lovely. Thank you, Aislinn. <laughs> Now, I'd like to thank welcome, you. just for a moment, though, I just want to thank Erin, working very hard with our Auslan interpreter. She's going to be tag-teaming as well, relaying with Luke here. Um, so, thank you very much, Erin. Okay, so now can I welcome Nigel, Taylor, up, and Isun, Isun is going to, God, I've tripped on that, haven't I, is going to interview Nigel. So, Nigel, if you sit here with Isun. And Nigel's the CEO of Lifesaving Victoria, and he's been there for the past 25 years and has a deep, deep passion for access, not surprisingly, to blue spaces. So about the outdoor world. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing this. Take it away. Thanks, Emma. Hi, Nigel. Thanks so much for um, being here. And so um, we just met, so I don't know Nigel that well, but we had a very quick chat. And could you please tell us about your role as the CEO of um, Life Saving Victoria first <coughs> a little bit? Um. It's probably evolved. I've obviously been there over 25 years now, so uh, it's needed to evolve <laughs> for my own sanity. Uh, it's an organisation that looks after the general thought of water safety across all the environments. So um, people tend to go to the lifesavers on the beach and that's the sort of public window, of, if you like, of Lifesaving Victoria, but it's, it's a great deal more than that in, in the sense of what it does within the school system, within the regional centres... Uh, and and just generally in terms of 
what is now a massively growing program, our multicultural program as well, uh, from that perspective. Sure. And um, how do you think, because you, you've been doing some research, including your PhD on um, coastal event centres and um, yeah, facilities. Mm. Um, so how do you think that could sort of contribute to the health um, of the community as mm. well as um, helping people to find their way? Yeah. I think we take... Uh, th it started with a sense that, uh, one, if you look around here, you've, you've got a whole series of organisations and agencies that will uh, think about green space. So they'll, they'll think about it from all different perspectives. We have an M pavilion here that's fitted into this green space. In fact, every M pavilion has been put in green space. But if I said to you, there's no reason why you wouldn't put an M pavilion in blue space. Um, and the only reason I, I would suggest that maybe that hasn't happened is because no one's thinking about it from a blue space perspective. So, so from my side of things, uh, I realised that if, if I didn't or we didn't think about it from a blue space perspective, then probably no one would. So, so I needed to do more work around it from that. I think we also, uh, a lot of blue space environments, you again take for granted that they're, they're, they're really good for your well-being. Mm -hmm. so, so we gravitate towards those blue space environments or we like to have an outlook over water and all those sorts of things. But do we then set those blue spaces up so that they work really well other than just for that one time when we're sort of sitting quietly contemplating. So do we set them up so that if we want to have events, and, and the problem in, in my world is people think I'm talking about sporting events, but I'm actually talking about carols by candlelight, food and wine festivals, all those sorts of things that bring the community together. But if we can bring them together around blue spaces, I think we can get a double whammy in terms of the well-being mm -hmm. coming through from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Sorry, did you have a question? No, no, no. Um, so um, my other question was about the interesting set of guidelines that you came up with for, um, um, in terms of recommendations for uh, these um, coastal event centres. So can you explain a little bit about those as well? Yes. Uh, usually, and in, in, um, I guess we're in the sort of St Kilda area, and, and you're obviously a, a local uh, from that perspective, um, you see uh, at Katani Gardens, for example, you'll see an event every second weekend and what happens is there's an enormous amount of effort goes into setup, and then the event goes over the weekend, let's say, and then you've got three, four, five days of takedown. So what I'm trying to say is why don't we just rethink that area and try and build it such that it actually has not necessarily, you know, it changes the look and feel of the place, but you've actually built a whole series of things into there that will allow for that event to be more easily conducted. Um, so, so Katani Gardens, in a sense, is probably not the best example, but we've done a lot of work down at uh, Morty Alec. So you've got a great beach, long, wide open beach, mm. works really <coughs> well for all sorts of events, um, but your car parking is has never been dealt with in the sense of what if you had to bring emergency vehicles into here? What if you had to shift a very big crowd really quickly from those perspectives? So let's think it all through from that. What happens about three-phase power? How do I access three-phase power in the safest possible way? So it picks up on those really boring functional pieces, but trying to put them those really functional pieces into a really great external environment uh, from that side. And... Um I know that you have a um, focus on the importance of the 
contextual culture and uh, the specificity of different locations. So how do you think that is sort of, I mean, comparing international cases and Australian local or, you know, the cases in Victoria, how do you see the differences? And do you think there are cultural differences why, you know, certain uh, centers that, um, coastal centers that actually are more activated in other countries, like Nordic countries, yeah. um, are not as active or as um, popular in Australian contexts? Um, one of the sort of side pieces of uh, creating coastal <coughs> event centres is, is another thought that you would actually put coastal baths into coastal event centres. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the commentary I've had back in regard to that is, but why would you do that in Melbourne when you've probably got a, a limiting climate? Um, and I find it really interesting that the best work in the world at the moment is being undertaken in the Nordic countries where if Melbourne's got challenges, then they're, they're ex they've got extreme challenges in terms of how they would deliver that uh, from, from that perspective. But again, spending some time with them recently, um, from their perspective, it's, it's just again the same thing. It's facilitating the experience and making the experience uh, more accessible to more people so that it's not to a confined audience like it might otherwise be. Um, <coughs> I, I think it's really interesting. So we, we've obviously just come through an election. Um, two to three weeks before the election, we announced a new peer for St Kilda. Again, staying with the St Kilda context. Um, so we announced a new peer for St Kilda and we said we would put $52 million, I think, towards that peer and we released some design work. Um, and so picking up on your contextual local uh, environment, I found it really fascinating that we would say our most visited beach in the state with our most eclectic audience, we will build a very standard pier. Mm. Um, so again, it's that same piece. Who's doing the thinking? And I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying I want to I help create people to start mm. thinking about it. So why isn't it that uh, if we build a pier at St Kilda, it's the most eclectic pier in the state? You've got people Instagramming all around the world. Tourism is a massive thing for Victoria. You've got people Instagramming all around the world with whatever that end outcome is and saying, what a great thing. This is, yeah. this is St Kilda Beach. This is not Huntington Beach. This is not some beach in the UK or yeah. Europe or South America or whatever. So what is it that we actually create our own identity? Yeah, so, Nigel, you've actually provided us with the perfect segue to the next speaker. <laughs> Unbeknownst to yourself. Thank you so much, Aysan, for interviewing Nigel. Oh, mate. Thank you. So, um, if Nigel just... You can stay there, Nigel, you don't have to move along. We could do musical chairs or, like, tunnel wall, but that might get a bit... So, I might trip. So, the reason why I thought... That was a great segue. Thank you so much. Is... Um, thank you, Aysan. Beautiful. <laughs> is we're now on to invite Troy Innocent up onto the stage with us. He's an artist, designer, coder and educator and works in public art practice and does this thing called urban code making, which has basically got to do with playful spaces. So I'm feeling that maybe maybe we better get you down to sort out that St Kilda Pier. <laughs> sure, I'm up for that. <laughs> okay. So now you have, have Thanks, some Emma. fun and interview him, see if you can get him down for the job. Thanks, Emma. Um, oddly enough, uh, I was just saying to Venetia before we started that I, I had been thinking about you, Troy, uh, and uh, whether you could provide the finishing sort of piece that I just can't uh, provide myself. So... Who knows? Um, I, 
I just wrote a series of questions last night, so I apologise in advance that this might jump all over the place. Um, in terms of setting some context, do you feel, and, and you've obviously done uh, a number of projects overseas and you've worked with various forms in your, um, in your uh, artistic uh, lifestyle, um, do you feel that you've found your way at this stage? Oh, wow. Starting with a really big question. Yeah, very good. Very good. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I, um, I mean, as much as anyone can say that because, you know, uh, it's one of the, the aspects of, I, I guess, being a creative person that is the most frustrating and perhaps the most rewarding is the fact that you're constantly questioning yourself and questioning the world and questioning your role in, in that world. Um, uh, and, you know, that varies. So you go through times where it's like, well, should I really be doing this? You know, um, is this, the, you know, is this what, what I, I want to, you know, to, to, to manifest in, in, into, into the world? Is, you know, this is... Um, but at the moment, I'm in a good place. So, yeah. Good, good. <laughs> so, uh, and hopefully you stay there. That's right. Um, like I'm a therapist who can help out if you need it. <laughs> now, you've, uh, you've worked in Istanbul, Hong Kong. Yes, Sydney, that's right. Yeah, Melbourne. Yeah. Um, do you think you would have found yourself in the same space if you'd worked more permanently in each of those each of those locations? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question because uh, I've been based in Melbourne all my life. I grew up here, and and um, just as an aside, I've you know spent actually quite a few years living in um, Elwood near St Kilda. So when you first mentioned blue spaces and the end pavilion, I thought, wow, yeah, imagine a floating end pavilion that everyone has to swim out to. That would be Really amazing. Um, I can see some long lunches coming up. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, I have travelled a lot as part of my art practice, and in fact, the um, uh, current work that I'm doing around um, playful wayfinding and playable cities and so forth really started uh, in um, in Tokyo and, and in um, time that I spent in in, in other cities. And really, what I was doing was finding um, because I became you know, uh, well, uh, during the 90s, spent a lot of time making um, uh, digital and electronic work, some virtual reality and other kind of spaces which were quite, um, um, as was the kind of, I guess, the, the, the focus of, 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 you know, kind of what we used to call new media arts practice at the time, very much about looking at the internal codes of, of, of digital systems and the ways of being inside those types of... Uh, you know, electronic ways of being. But um, about 20 years ago or so, I became more interested in in um, how a lot of well, first of all, a lot of those codes were seeping out into into uh, lived experience. Um, but also, I, be I became uh, more interested in cities and urban spaces and how, of course, these were also complex uh, systems and complex um, kind of ways, kind of uh, uh, places to to be in. And um, I found the first thing that I had to do was find my own kind of way of being in that space. So, so kind of exploring those uh, urban environments and uh, reflecting back on, on my own um, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, how I responded to the city and how I w w you know, kind of spent time in the city and other ways of being in the city other than you know, just functional getting from A to B, but also you know, um, you know, lived experience and so forth became really, really important. So the... The uh, question I becomes is: Is it environment or genetic the biggest influencer on finding your way? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so now, now nurture versus nature, yeah, kind yeah. of. Um, uh, you know, 
Um, I mean, that's that's it's kind of uh, there's so many layers to that question because True. you know our, our environments. I mean, this is one of the things I, I I kind of really find really fascinating is that um, our environments are so constructed, but because they're so normalised, uh, we actually just don't see or, or kind of perceive all of the rules and systems that are in place, um, which is why coming from this kind of uh, coming to, to urban space from the point of view of play is really interesting because you're then able to kind of um, pose scenarios and situations and, and approaches that start to, to, to either challenge those rules overtly or even just show all kind of alternatives or show, well, actually, this is all kind of just a big ongoing process. You know, cities are not real. In, in it might be made of concrete, steel and... And, and glass and other materials, but actually it's all these cultural processes and histories and potential futures, all kind of ongoing. Uh, and so, you know, that's the environment. It's a really, really hugely complex space. And then you bring individuals into that environment that you know, might have certain, I guess, genetic dip disposition because, uh, you know, we are driven by that, um, by, by kind of who we are biologically, I guess. Um, but we're also driven by what, who we are culturally as well. So it's a, it's a really, really complex um, uh, situation. And, um, and um, uh, so I can't really call one or the other except to say that my p personal position and what I'm really interested in is, is this idea of it, uh, of everything as an ecosystem, even what we see as, um, you know, technological or, or kind of... Um, uh, systems that we don't see as, as having natural properties. They, they, they all follow the similar rules and patterns and processes and understanding them from that point of view is really important. Yeah. Thanks. Um, a subjective question again. Name the top three of these uh, <laughs> that are the, your influences for uh, well-being. Religion, art, sport, reflection, alcohol, study... Travel, family, friends, work, sleep. Oh my God! Music. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe let him look at that list. I think we'll give him. And your time begins. And, and well, now. That's right. Well, That's um, all of us should reflect on that in a way. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess from a personal point of view, I would say I'm just going to go the first three, um, which are music, meditation, and travel. So um, for me personally. Uh, and because they, they activate different parts of, of, of who I am. I mean, you ask me next week, it might be completely different. Um, I, but, but those, um, I guess, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I find that um, travel is definitely a you know, process of self-discovery and all of those types of things. And I think that, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I started traveling kind of... Um, uh, around the, around the, the, when I first started my art practice and I found it was really, really important to have that broader cultural context. And in fact, I probably wouldn't be working with the cities today unless I'd visited a bunch, a, a, a number of different cities and seen all of the different perspectives and thought, well, okay, yeah, right. Well, you know, Melbourne follows one set of rules, but this, you know, Istanbul follows another set of rules and Hong Kong is different again and it's changing now. So... Uh, so that that's kind of really important. But this is for well-being, right? Not for art making. But for me, they're kind of connected. Um, music, I find so is the kind of even though I've worked with VR a lot, uh, uh, I find still music to be one of the most immersive art forms in terms of um, having that sense of being outside of yourself, um, especially 
I guess, in connection with the, um, or, you know, because music is often connected to dance and other, not, not that I can dance particularly well, but I do enjoy that. So, uh, so there's that kind of aspect as well. So in terms of well-being, you know, kind of that is certainly my go-to in terms of um, a quick fix, whereas meditation and ref reflection is more of a long kind of, uh, well, you know, I've got to re-centre, you know, re um, take myself back in. But then, you know, that's connected to travel as well uh, in terms of, you know, say going for a bush walk or um, some kind of reflective um, walk along the beach, perhaps. Um, so, so, yeah. So there's my ramble um, on well-being. Very good. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent answer. Thank you so much. And thank you. Very good. Very provocative. We'll get that list to everyone later. <laughs> um, we'll have a little voting panel up here. You can put down what, what motivates you the most. Um, and it is interesting, isn't it, with travel being a way of finding different things in your life. And travel, I've certainly found, is an education. Um, when we... We were travelling when my children were very young and the school teacher, Henry, who's sitting in the audience now, believe it or not, was a prep child. And um, the teacher gave him all this homework to do when he was in prep. And she said, here, there, and she gave me this wadge of paper. So, of course, I went, oh, there's a nice dragon puzzle and took that and didn't take anything else with us. And then when we came back, she sat me down and she said, did Henry do the work that I gave him while you were away for the five weeks? So I went, I, always, I get a bit nervous in front of teachers sometimes. So I said, why do you ask? She said, because he's jumped five levels in his reading since he's come back. And that, in all honesty, was wayfinding. You know, when you land in a place and you find your way and you navigate. So travel is the most extraordinary education, which now leads me in a more sort of philosophical way to our next talker, uh, speaker, talker, Eliana Horn. Here she is. She is a philosophy teacher. So we're going to get a bit more philosophical here. A freelance writer and is really interested in looking at the ethics of VR, the uses and abuses of VR in the, in the teaching space, but also in life in general? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, here we go. This will, this will be a really interesting conversation. Take it away. So, Eliana, um, I just wanted to start with a random question because we've pulled sure. out of your bio. So, in, in your opinion, what is the moral value of food? The moral value of food. Well, well. Um, so I started thinking about this because um, I've got a partner, lots of very good friends who are vegetarian. And I, you know, there's a big part of me that feels super morally compelled to become vegetarian too. Lots of good reasons to become vegetarian and vegan. But I don't want to. <laughs> and I was thinking about, well, why this is. What is the value in my eating meat in my life? Um, and ultimately it comes down to the moral value of food. I think about the uh, beautiful traditional feasts that my Greek grandmother, my yaya, cooks me and my family. And when we're partaking in those feasts, those traditional meals, we're passing down um, culture, histories, um, we're practicing our identities, um, we're practicing love and generosity, certainly, you know, in Greek culture and in a lot of other cultures, you know, where there's a lot of sharing foods. And, yeah, sometimes this has to do with eating meat because that is what the recipes call for, you know, that, that's the tradition, that's the history. Uh, so that's what got me thinking about the, the, the moral codes um, and the forms of, uh, of identity that we practice when we're eating food. So I think that the, the moral value of food is different for everyone. 
and, and, and huge and important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and of course, um, that, that's, that's sustainable as well. And you could just eat meat on weekends when, with your family. Too true. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of leading, you've spent some quality time at social clubs in Melbourne, um, the House of Hercules in particular. Um, what role do you think these spaces play in the local community, particularly in connection with well-being, um, you know, collective well-being? Yeah, so do you know the social clubs I'm talking about? Like, you go along a high street, particularly into the northern suburbs, and there, there are these sort of shop fronts with just a bunch of old men sitting there playing cards and, you know, drinking coffee. And they seem pretty exclusive, and you're like, what is going on there? Like, what? I, anyway, I wanted in. I really wanted in. <laughs> Um, so I started exploring one of these particular social clubs, House of Hercules, um, just in High Street Thornbury. And I'm, you know, half Greek, so it wasn't totally just a noxious ploy into partaking in someone's culture that I'm not a part of. Um, and I sort of, you know, wheedled in there and was asked in Greek whether I could get a coffee. And it turns out they were totally hospitable and beautiful. Um, I grew up in a you know, a, a school, a, a beautiful school, but I, like I, it was a super white school and you know, like, I'm Greek Australian and I was considered the most like exotic person in my class. Um, and I so I didn't really have a way to like express this like sense of culture and identity, which is a huge part of like my well-being um, growing up apart from within, like, within my own direct family. So for me, for me personally, partaking in this, um, this, this social club, sort of wheedling my way in there, um, w was a really beautiful way to, to express that part of my identity. And certainly, you know, historically, these social clubs have been a place for people, um, you know, migrants who didn't speak the language, who needed a support structure, um, to find their way and to be part of the community uh, as recent migrants. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to these beautiful places um, in the generations to come. Like, I, hope, I so hope they're maintained somehow. Yeah, I think they're an important part of the city. It's one thing I noticed in Istanbul is lots of people playing backgammon on the street. Yeah. Um, and it changes the pace of the city. Mm. Um, so we've just got a quick... I, I mean, I, I also teach um, game students um, who are usually inspired, but I've just got this really kind of... Uh, quick question now about your best trick for inspiring students on a Monday morning. Uh, Chocolate. In your, yeah? Is that what you do in your class? That's her moral food. <laughs> uh, look, I'm, I feel like really like blessed to have, you know, become interested in, in philosophy. And it's not that hard to get students to partake in questions about philosophy. When you're asking them things like, hey, could we actually be living in a virtual reality and never even know it? You know, or, I don't know, is there such thing as objective morality? Or is morality completely subjective? And these are huge questions. And I, I think it's kind of impossible not to be um, motivated when you're asking these you know, huge philosophical questions. I, I, it's easy, it's, it, through philosophy, it can be pretty easy. That's good. Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, because philosophy students are into what they're studying, like game students. Um, <laughs> and um, so, virtual reality is is um, it's often connected to escapism and social disconnection. And 
and your most virtual reality experiences are framed as entertainment. Um, however, it's also been used as a form of um, therapy or to enhance well-being. Um, so what role do you see it playing in you know, the work that you're doing? So I'm a philosophy and a humanities teacher and I've, I'm just starting to think about the, you know, the uses of virtual reality in the high school setting. Something we're asked to do often as humanities teachers is to elicit a sense of empathy um, with students. And VR has this huge potential to elicit empathy, yeah. Um, the experiences can be so visceral, so um, like completely encompassing. Like, you can't help but feel like you're in the moment, so it's easy to, like, be in someone else's shoes. Um, this poses some really weird ethical questions for me as a teacher. Like, you know, one of those really uh, kind of boring and dated activities that, you know, teachers get students to do. Um, write a creative piece or write a diary entry uh, as if you're, uh, I don't know, a prisoner of war in World War II. And that's supposed to elicit empathy, right? So what do we do in virtual worlds? Like, do we get students to game play prisoners of war? Do we get students to game play being an Indigenous Australian and Torres Strait Islander, um, you know, during the invasion? Like, is that a form of cultural blackface? Like, how do we use history and other people's stories in an appropriate way. How far do we want to elicit empathy anyway? Like, we don't want to go into, like, in-game trauma kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there's a huge amount of... Uh, you know, we have a duty of care as teacher too. We need to prevent students from being harmed physically and emotionally. So I think there are so many avenues of really cool ways to implement virtual worlds um, in the humanities classroom. But at the same time, I think we're going to be pretty careful. Interesting. Thank you so much. And um, it's interesting we talk about eliciting empathy. Um, I suppose I, I, I hope I live in a world where most people are just born with it <laughs> and that they want to, you know, that, that that's a natural thing. And in fact, to not be empathic is, is considered something that you really need to work on. So let's hope that, you know, they just they don't have to go too hard <laughs> to awaken the the caring senses uh, in their souls. Empathy training. Yeah, I did notice my son chuckling when you're talking about uh, VR because I'm thinking of him, you know, with the there's a, was a gods of war or something. So, you know, is it possible that he is Thor now <laughs> that he's been playing that, that virtual reality? So thank you so much for that. We'll now invite the next speaker up. <clears throat> so I'd like to welcome Donna Stoltz to the chair. Uh, Donna is a charity founder with 20 years experience, um, basically working with and caring with people experiencing homelessness. And she has a passion for supporting women and children to help them escape family violence. Uh, this is a great passion of mine as well at the hospital, as well as doing music therapy. We have a hospital program called, called Strengthening Hostel's Response to Family Violence, uh, because often people will come to the hospital and that be their first port of call. And we just can't miss that. We are, and with all honesty, probably hospitals have missed it in the past. And now they're making a conscious decision, you know, to really actively educate our staff to help and support 
people to help navigate their way through. So hopefully, um, Donna, in the future, we might be doing some work together because, Definitely. yeah, I think it's this is a this is a, a sad but exciting time I think for the world. So I will now take it away. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Nice to meet you. Yes, we haven't met before now. So. Oh, here we go. Um, so I'm going to start off with a really big question, maybe a basic, but also I suppose super complicated question. Um, what has caused this recent and pretty visible um, increase in homelessness in Melbourne? Um, it, it's it's quite a systemic um, problem, but but part of it is um, what we're sort of seeing is this perfect storm of um, housing affordability. Um, not, you know, houses are so so much more expensive now and when we look at the, the groups who are sort of streaming into homelessness at a faster rate than any other group, we're, we're mainly seeing middle-aged women as that cohort and, and that's mainly because of housing affordability um, being so out of reach for so many people. Women in that age group tended to be part-time workers um, were less likely to have professional careers that they could rely on. Ageing bodies, part-time work now won't get you half a house if your marriage should break down or um, as you're heading towards that retirement age or um, you're seeing, um, like, you just, you know, even if, you, if you, your relationship's broken down, you've got half the money for a house, you can't get um, another half a house. So, um, and we're seeing a lot more prevalence in it because of societal breakdown. We've got generation after generation of, um, of family breakdown. So, um, we're, we're seeing a lot more people out of work. Uh, we're, we've got diff ha homelessness is caused by different issues these days than it was 30 years ago. There are different drugs on the street. There are, we're so much more disconnected now as a society than what we were years ago. There's less people to rely on for help and support to go to. Yeah, so about that disconnect. Um, I think a pretty common experience for, you know, people who aren't experiencing homelessness is to sort of, you know, see people experiencing homelessness on the street and feel a little bit guilty, you know, it feels kind of like a bit unpleasant and uncomfortable. Um, but ultimately, it can be quite easy to dismiss that as sort of, well, it's not my problem. Mm. So I guess my question is, how do you get people to understand homelessness as a societal problem rather than, rather than one individual's problem? We actually do that on an individual basis because at the moment what you know about homelessness is either through your own experience, the experience of someone close to you or what the media has taught you. And I guarantee you what the media has taught you is probably wrong. And what we do is um, homeless awareness sessions. We do those for corporates, for individuals, for schools, for anybody. And we actually talk about the reasons, um, the causes of homelessness. And in those sessions, we, we get people to understand what we refer to as your reference point. So that's the point that you started in life and how you got to where you are now and how that influences how you look out at other people. So we look at people experiencing homelessness and we think, oh, well, if that was me, what I'd want is A, B and C. So we try and give them A, B and C. But their, their point that they got there is completely different to ours. So our pathway that, that we would take out can't be the same as, as what theirs is. So we try and understand that, uh, we try and get people to understand that we need to treat people as individuals and not categories. And currently we're categorising people and it's just not working. So. One of the things that we really focus on is getting people to see how your own journey, your beliefs, your customs, your, um, your experiences influences the way you see and treat other people experiencing homelessness and we, we have to kind of remove that. Um, there's a lot of discussion about the lack of public housing uh, available, uh, particularly in Melbourne. 
there are also those uh, who choose to live on the street despite having access to public housing. Um, why do people choose to do this? For the people that I've met who've chosen to live on the street, it's because they've exhausted all avenues of finding housing and exhausted all avenues of getting support. And they've just simply given up. So they, don't, they, they no longer will find those pathways back into housing because it's too exhausting and there's no support for them there to actually do that. So many people are not able to comply with the mutual obligation required to keep a house. So things like rent inspections can be terrifying. Um, it, you know, that, there's that invasion of someone coming into your house. Paying bills can be beyond some people's um, thought process. People experiencing homelessness very often live with what we call a trauma brain. So and a, a, tra a traumatised brain can usually only think sort of between three hours and three days ahead of time. So we expect people to have long-term goals and be able to think long-term, think ahead, plan their life. You know, what are your long-term goals? Where do you see yourself in a year when really they're trying to figure out where they're getting lunch from? So living in a house, anyone who's housed or has a mortgage understands that you've got a plan for your rates, your water, you've got a plan for, uh, even if you're renting, you've got to plan your rent, you've got to plan everything, and that's beyond people who are living in that situation. One of the analogies that we use, and it's a very crude analogy, but it kind of works, is so if, if, a, if a tiger was to have escaped from the zoo and come running in here right now, you're, everyone's brain's going to go into that, that trauma mode. How do I survive this incident? No one's going to be thinking about will I get to the train on time or what am I wearing to, to work tomorrow or what are we putting on for dinner? You'll be thinking about how do I escape this right now? When you live in that type of environment year after year, your brain will, will use the parts, it will, it will grow the parts it uses the most. So that trauma centre in your brain is the one that gets exercised and that's the one that you constantly live in. And we don't support people out of that process. There's not enough um, individual support for people to actually um, start thinking long-term, thinking yeah. another way. Yeah, right, things, things we take for granted, yeah. Um, so I know there's a direct link between women experiencing domestic violence um, and women experiencing homelessness. And really recently we've had uh, a lot of government campaigning, for example, like Respect Australia, uh, campaigning for people to call out abusive behaviour or behaviour that can lead to further abuse. Is this enough to combat toxic behaviour? And in your ideal world, what would, what would society, schools, governments be doing in order to address this kind of, you know, toxic, potentially abusive behaviour? It's definitely not enough and I think we put a lot of focus on the behaviour change, which is good and we do need to do that, but we're not focusing on supporting the people who are caught in the middle of it because I guarantee you when someone's getting beaten to death, they don't care about your awareness project. Yeah. They care about, why couldn't I get out? Why, why couldn't I get the support? Why was I too ashamed to tell anybody what was happening? Most abuse is covert, it's not overt. We don't actually see it happening. So we can't call out the behaviour we can't see. So we need to actually provide those avenues for people who, um, first of all, to understand what abuse is and that it is abusive. I've sat in courtrooms and, and seen women um, fighting for their partners to get out on bail because, look, he only hits me when the kids are asleep. Like, the kids don't see it, so it's all good. So they don't understand that they're in those abusive situations. But it, for the people that do understand it and want to get out, we don't provide enough for them. There's not enough money. There's not enough support system. There's not enough places to go. And when people do leave those situations, it's usually um, under such trauma and duress by the time they actually get out. And I think if anyone was um, 
like in, for the abuser, if they knew that that person had somewhere safe to go and they weren't going to put up with that anymore and didn't have to and they would leave, that would help to cull a lot of the abuse as well. So more supports for the, um, the victims and survivors is what we really need to focus on and making sure that they, you, they can get up and go and leave and have everything they need in, an, in the instant they decide to go. Call-out culture isn't everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, so in my philosophy class, we examine the question, what do we owe others? Uh, in the context of living a good life, so what role does alleviating suffering play uh, when it comes to living your good life? I think, uh, for me for me personally, um, I, I think that it's... Um, gosh, that's a tough question. Um, for me, it, um, alleviating suffering, to me, it's, it's about giving people choice and understanding that in the job that I do every day, I, I don't get to call the shots for anybody and I don't get to say, look, you know, I want to help you because this is what I can do. What I, I sort of turn it around and and ask people what it is that they want and can I offer that to them and I don't get in their way if I can't. So um, I, I try and use my skills, my competencies and, and my experiences to... Um, I, I can offer those to people but understand that it might not be what they want or need and not to get arrogant about that and not to get arrogant about, well, you know, we tried, you, you, didn't, you didn't take it, so, you know, it's all your fault now. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but, um, you know, I kind of live every day trying to help people on a pathway, and the individual pathway that they want to take, that they seek, what's good for them, what, what's their own journey and help them to do, to find the ways to do that, find the pathway to do that. Oh, I think you answered that beautifully, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for your wonderful interviewing. It was wonderful. Thank you. I've got just a quick question for you as we change over to... Um, because I often get asked this question because of the work that I do. How do you look after your own wellness? Oh, gosh, I have just... I've actually kind of turned into a raging hippie since I started in, in this work. I used to be, um, uh, like, very um, not focused on my own health and well-being, and now I'm into mindfulness meditation. I'm actually... For anyone who's interested, we're opening up a meditation den in Brunswick East in the new year. Um, that will be providing free meditation and connection courses to people experiencing homelessness, hardship, family violence. And because I found that in the last... I have a 10-year-old who has quite a profound disability as well, so I had to kind of learn that self-care, not only around work, but around family. So, yeah, it's meditation and yoga. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being a hippie. I'm going to join you on that one. Okay, now I'd like to introduce Fiona Gilmore. Is she... Where is she sitting? She's in the back. So Fiona is creative director of ID Lab as she's designer and creator and she does video installations and she loves a challenge and I think she's brought a challenge with her today. <laughs> How gorgeous. And you're almost matching in your designs. How <laughs> this is so beautiful. It should be on. Hello. There you go. Okay, take it away. What a very cute challenge. Could I do you want some help? How about I okay. can't hold your microphone because I actually can't hold my own, which is why we've got this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, you got a two-for-one deal. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that's great. Can I interview both of you? Um, <laughs> I think that's a no. She's got the notes just in case. She'll give you a prod if you get lost. So, um, Fiona, I've had a, a like, looking into your, your background in, uh, in fine art and, um, and being an art director, I have to say... For, for someone like me who still draws people at stick figures in houses with triangle roofs and, you know, the square windows, I find it really fascinating. Um, 
first of all, I just want to ask you what um, like what you currently do with ID Lab. Can you explain how that actually works? Yeah, what you do. <laughs> sure. Um, I'll start with ID Lab in general. So we are. I don't know if this is going to work too well. You can hold it for mummy. All right. Um, we are a wayfinding design company. So our tagline is making sense of the built environment. And basically that translates to helping everyone navigate um, spaces. So that could be, we do complex environments, so it's hospitals, more than complex environments, sorry, but that's the main things that we do at the moment. Hospitals, cultural institutions, things that you can imagine uh, that are hard to navigate through, basically. And what my role in is within the company um, as a creative director is we have two parts to our company. The first part is strategy, so figuring out, well, how are you going to navigate through that space? Um, how people, even also from the very, very beginning, so if you imagine going to hospital, for instance, um, the generally, I hate to say it, terrible letter that you receive to say what car park you need to go to where your um, appointment is supposed to be. Uh, we start from there, which is, um, water, okay, hang on a second. I might just have to ask. Okay. Oh, thank you. Um, sorry, so we start from there. We go through the whole journey to how you navigate to the room that you're supposed to do. That's the strategy side of it. And the creative side is basically deciding how that looks. So um, if you need to, for instance, find your way down a hallway or a certain direction, then what do we put there to give you that information and that can also be, most people kind of think signs, but we're moving towards trying to put something that's a bit more intuitive. So it might be a colour or a sculpture or um, we work really closely with architects, so hopefully also best case scenario influencing the architecture so you just naturally know your way around. Yeah. Fantastic. It's a long answer to you. <laughs> <laughs> I find it fascinating and I think one of the other speakers was that Troy was saying about um, their, how we kind of don't realise that there's this navigational system in place in cities and buildings. We kind of take for granted that, it, that it's there and we don't realise exactly how much we rely on it. You know, we just look for a sign, there it is and we don't give it another thought. Um, have you found that over the years as we've become more culturally diverse and, and more aware of people with differing abilities and, um, and differing needs, have you, have you found that wayfinding that the industry has had to change and adapt to that? I'm going to do a caveat and say that I'm actually relatively new to wayfinding and design, but I would say that my colleagues would agree that it has changed and will always change. So um, we actually, I did have a conversation with my boss not that long ago, I think a couple of months, that I said, um, when will it be that we'll have completely gender neutral toilets that we won't need to do female, male? And he said, never, never. <laughs> and I think it was maybe a month after that that we first saw a gender neutral toilet. Um, and what do you do? We work a lot with pictograms, obviously, um, because a lot of our wayfinding needs to be, I don't know the way to say it, but without language... Um, because obviously you have a lot of people that um, don't read English. We do a lot of stuff that it would be overseas visitors that are, you know, and also hospitals. You're not controlling who and what population access that. So what is the pictogram for a gender neutral toilet so that you still understand what that is that you're going to? But how do you include people while giving them the information that they need? 
Um, so that's changed, and I think it will always be changing with more awareness of the society that we live in. Um, and that's also something that's a focus of our company is that we say that we're user-centred. So we, when we approach a job, our first thing that we do is do workshops with the users with the users of the space so that we understand what are the needs of this and that changes, that will change through, I guess, within a year as well. You're doing different things for different needs. Yep. Yeah. We've, we've found that in the industry that we work in as well with people um, especially who are unable to read even in their own language because they've never been taught to read. Um, that the, the picturals are actually, um, we're, be, we're using those quite a, uh, quite a lot. One of the other things that we're finding in, in the space that we work in um, is something that some people might have heard of or haven't, is hostile architecture, where uh, systems and, and places are designed deliberately to disconnect people from that area. Is that something that you've had any personal experience within your work or a topic that comes up? Or, no, I'm not saying have you, had, you, know, have you been commissioned <laughs> to actually um, design any, but is it something that's becoming a discussion amongst, amongst architects and artists? Um, I, I definitely think, in terms of what we do, it is uh, an ongoing discussion, and absolutely. So I would say, I, I guess our strategists would agree with me here that our best case scenario is that we're working with architects from the very, very beginning. So for instance, um, a really good example would be if you entered a lobby of a large building and the only way to access um, say hospitals actually tend to be this, that the, uh, say the appointment um, rooms are a level above and 80% of people need to take the lift, is orientating that lift so you can actually see it as soon as you enter the door. Because you'd be surprised about the amount of buildings that hide it away and people spend their whole time trying to navigate the building to find where they need to go. Um, so that's what we want to influence when when we do our job. So trying to limit the hostile <laughs> aspects. Yeah. Um, obviously, some architects are... I, I mean, I, I would have to ask um, the guys that I work with, but hopefully it is changing the, um, the way that people think about buildings and how people use buildings. Um, I think that conversation is a much different conversation now than, say, 20 years ago. Um, I think it is more user-centred. Um, but with anything, um, architecture and art, there's the ego involved as well. So you need to manage that when, you know, there's that pure design aspect that you need to balance. So how do you balance form and function? And to be honest, it happens, that's our job as well. Oh, that's probably the m biggest tension that I have in my role is how do we do something incredibly beautiful, um, really interesting design-wise, while it also has to have a really specific function. So if we put up a sign that people can't read, it's not going to work. Um, it just doesn't tick that box. Um, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And with, uh, in the wayfinding industry, when you're mapping and planning how to navigate a problem that um, is will find a solution to a problem for other people as in finding their way around or how to recognise where something is or a building or what, what the function is. Do you find that when you are using those those skills in the workspace that they're transferable to your everyday life? Do you find that, that you ever sort of find yourself navigating life or your own um, life issues using those same skill sets as what you do at work? Uh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, 
If only, uh, to be honest, if only I sat down and mapped out how, how to navigate my life, um, I think it, I think it's changed a lot. Anyone with kids would know this that uh, stuff gets thrown up in the air. So as much as you try and navigate yourself, um, something happens that means that you have to find a different way. Um, it's maybe a cliche, but I would say actually being a mum has helped me navigate. Has been more strategic about how and what and when I'm going to do things and how I will find my own way there. Um, I think that's been the biggest thing to make me sit down and really think about it. Um, yeah, not so much. If only I could use flows and yeah. uh, <laughs> mapping. <laughs> That'd be good. And um, on, a, on a personal note, the industry that you're working in now, the work that you're doing, mm -hmm. is this where you thought you would be, say, 20 years ago? When, like, I don't know how old you are. You look very young. But, Thank um, you. If... Um, is this the life that you mapped out for yourself? And if it is, what do you think helped you to to fulfil those particular personal goals and dreams? If it isn't, what do you think might have helped you to stay on the on the pathway that? <laughs> or are you you know did you was it sort of a, a wonderful accident that you ended up where you are? Oh, um, funnily enough, I'm actually 38. So um, hang on. So it's actually an unbelievably applicable question because uh, I have found nearing 40, I have actually been trying to take stock and have a look at where I am and if this, how I got here and is this what I want to be doing and what do I want to be doing? Because um, pa I think so my, I did an art degree and was an artist for a really long time. So the only strategic move I made of my own volition was deciding to study design. And once I kind of did that, I don't, uh, it kind of is the job opportunities that get offered and you need a job, reality speaking, especially when you're a graduate. So you take that job and then that gives you a certain amount of experience in a certain thing. Um, so I feel like I've been going with the flow. I never would have seen myself here 20 years ago. That doesn't mean that I don't want to be here. Like, it's fascinating and I love what I do. Um, but I haven't been... I didn't have an end goal in mind and said, OK, well, I need to get that job and then that job and that job. I've bounced around. Um, but I also think that that comes from the way that I think that I adapt quite easily. So I have a sort of unusual career that I have designed in a lot of different spaces of... Uh, advertising, really fine design, uh, that kind of thing. So I don't know if that answers your question. Still thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that, it's that adaptation, I think, that you're talking about. Yep. Because w without a doubt, I mean, I can map out tomorrow and I'm pretty sure it mightn't look like that. Um, certainly the work we do in the hospitals, which is exactly that every day, yep. I have to remap my day. I've been doing that for 20 years. So, yep. yeah, thank you so much. It was absolutely wonderful. You are listening to an MP Villain <laughs> podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.